Well, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans. And if you're just joining us this morning, uh, we launched into a a new series uh, on this um, epic book written by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the book of Romans. And um, I want to go back and reread for us the uh, opening verses, and we'll just read verses 1 through 7 today. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord." Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. God, we come to you as our Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we have just sung how he is Lord, the one who came and lived and died and rose again and is coming again. And in the meantime, we have the privilege of waiting in expectation as we study the words of your scriptures that you left for us to help us to navigate this world, Lord, as we wait for the coming of Christ or for Christ to take us home to be with him. And so we're thankful for the book of Romans, Lord, we're thankful for what you have in store for us. I pray you'd use even uh, our time this morning to begin accomplishing uh, your work in our lives through this uh, special, uh, unique, significant portion of your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as you know, over the past month or so, there's been a lot of bad news in our world and in our country, and it only seems to be getting worse. Hurricanes, earthquakes, threats of war, terror attacks, ethnic cleansings, political infighting, and Just this week, the deadliest mass shooting in modern U.S. history. If you've been watching or listening or reading the news, uh, the one question that everyone's been asking that continues to baffle the authorities is, why? Why? Why did Stephen Paddock do it? And we may never know the specific reason, but based on what the Bible says, we do know the answer to that question, why, don't we? No other book of the Bible provides a, a clearer answer to that question than the book of Romans. It's, it's really no mystery at all. Because Paul makes it very clear in this book that our world... And everyone in it is cursed by sin. And that's why there's so much violence. And that's why there's so much conflict and suffering and and heartache. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 22. Paul talking about the curse of sin upon the whole earth. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. The world itself is longing to be redeemed from the curse of sin. There's not a place on this planet that's not affected by sin, nor nor a person on this planet that's not infected with sin. The curse of sin is found everywhere. Look at Romans chapter 3, verse 10. 
Romans chapter 3, verse 10, Paul says, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together have become, they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then verse 23, he summarizes all of that by saying simply, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, we know that the world that we're living in isn't the world that God made at first. Things were not this way before sin entered the world. Originally, the world was was a perfect paradise in which there was no such thing as violence or conflict or pain or sorrow. But everything changed the moment man rebelled against God. And when Adam and Eve ate that forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, the curse of sin and death came upon them and, and, and upon all of us as their descendants. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Therefore, Paul says, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And as a result of sin, not just Adam and Eve's sin, but our own sin, we have had to learn to live with natural disasters and world wars and genetic diseases and mass shootings and maybe worst of all, the certainty of our own death. We all live knowing that someday we're going to die. And the harsh reality of all this is that we've created this mess ourselves. By not honoring God and obeying his commands. And now we're experiencing his wrath against our sin. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed, or literally being revealed, from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The the image here is of a dam that, that is holding back. God's wrath, and every so often, a little bit of water is released over the top. And so it's being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Verse 21, for even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And then notice what he says in verse 28, this climactic portion or description of the wrath of God. He says, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind where people think and say and do things that make no sense. And they do things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil. You heard that a few times this week, pure evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, their gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, watch out for that one, kids, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. In other words, we have no one else to blame but ourselves for the way the world is, and we truly deserve God's judgment. What does that judgment look like? Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. 
what we have rightfully earned as a result of our sin is death. Not just getting old and die, getting old and dying, but being eternally separated from God in hell. But I only read the first part of that verse. That's only half the story. That's the bad news. You want to hear the good news? But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the good news of the gospel. And even though God would have been completely just to let us all die and go to hell, he graciously and and mercifully made a way for the curse of sin to be removed from our lives so we can be reconciled to him and escape his judgment. And the way he did that was he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live and die in the place of sinners like you and sinners like me, to deliver us from the pain and the sorrow and the misery and wrath that we've brought upon ourselves as a result of our sinful rebellion against God. And so Jesus lived a a perfect, sinless life and then experienced God's awful wrath against our sin through his death on the cross. And then after he died, God powerfully raised him from the dead to show that the life that he lived and the death that he died was a satisfactory substitute in God's eyes. As we'll learn in Romans 3, it was a propitiation a satisfaction. God's wrath was satisfied. His justice was served. And so consequently, God now offers to forgive and grant eternal life to all those who are willing to turn away from their sinful rebellion against him and trust in what Christ did in his life and his death as the only way that they could be made right with God. And no other book in the Bible provides a clearer presentation of the glorious good news of salvation than Romans. And that's why I chose to call this the glorious gospel. And I couldn't help but capitalize on the news over the last few weeks to to show you the relevance of the book of Romans. If you ever wondered, is is this book really relevant to my life? Is this really relevant to what's going on in, in the world today? Hopefully you see now, absolutely, there's nothing more relevant than the gospel. And that's what this letter is all about, the gospel. And you may know this, but the word gospel is how we usually translate the Greek word euangelion from where we get our words evangelism and evangelize. And uh, euangelion literally means what? Good news. In fact, when when William Tyndale was translating the Bible uh, into English, he translated that word euangelion as glad tidings. Glad tidings. And in Paul's day, it was... It was uh, the euangelion was, was uh, what the king's herald did when he made a joyful proclamation like the, the, the queen had given birth to a child or there was a royal wedding uh, going to happen or, or a war had been won. That was the, the euangelion. And so the, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the, the joyous proclamation that the king's son The Prince of Peace was born as a a pauper into his enemy land, an enemy nation, if you will, and and lived and died to conquer sin and death and then rose victorious from the grave and he now reigns at the right hand of his father, his father's throne in heaven, and beckons everyone to confess him as their Lord and bow their knee in submission to him as their king and honor and obey him with their lives in order to be part of his glorious kingdom, which he started here on earth and will last forever in the new heavens and the new earth. 
This word gospel was used close to 100 times uh, in the New Testament. Uh, Paul used it 70 of those times. 70 of those are from Paul. 10 of which are here in his letter to the Romans. And and obviously, it, it shows up in the theme verses. If you remember last week, I said that the theme verses of Romans are chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, for I'm not ashamed of the what? Of the euangelion, the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, excuse me, and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Literally, the book begins... That's the, that's the heart of the book, if you will. That's the theme of the book. But the book literally begins and, and ends with the gospel. Notice verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the what? For the gospel of God. Turn to Romans 16. Romans 16, the last section of this letter. Verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my What? Gospel. He starts by talking, it's, it's God's gospel, now it's his gospel, Paul's gospel. And the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past, but now is manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations, leading to obedience of faith, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ be the glory forever. Amen. And again, just we're still kind of in the initial observation stages here, just kind of getting our, our bearings here in the book of Romans. But just an initial observation reveals that the gospel is, first of all, from God, and ultimately it's for God. It's from God, and it's for God, and, and specifically for His what? For His glory. In fact, at the, at the midpoint, or the, I guess better, maybe the turning point, the transitional point, of this letter in Romans chapter 11, after getting done describing uh, the gospel, the good news of salvation, uh, Paul concludes this first doctrinal section with with these words. This is Romans 11, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. That's why I chose to title this series, The Glorious Gospel. It's more than just the gospel, it's the glorious gospel. In other words, it's the gospel that brings God glory. Well, honestly, I actually based um, the title on a verse in another one of Paul's letters in which he mentioned the gospel. If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11, of all the 70 times Paul mentioned the gospel, this is might be my favorite one, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 11. Paul's talking about the gospel that he was entrusted with. He says, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. That's how he describes the gospel, the glorious gospel of the blessed God. The ESV, some of you might have an ESV translation, and maybe someday we'll get saved and go back to the NASB, but um, just kidding. No, I'm just kidding. The ESV is good. But this is what the ESV says, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The NIV, again, says something similar, that conforms to the gospel according to the glory of the blessed God which he entrusted to me. Ultimately, the gospel is all about the glory of God. In other words, God's plan of salvation was designed in such a way, and we're going to see maybe today, I'm not sure, if not next week, that he was the mastermind behind the gospel. And he devised the gospel, designed the gospel in such a way as to maximize his attributes, to to put on display his attributes so he would receive praise and honor for who he is in, in his wisdom, in his wrath, in his justice, in his love, in his grace, in his mercy, in his power, in his goodness, in his faithfulness, and 
and specifically his righteousness. There's nothing that exalts God and all of his characteristics that make him God than the gospel. The plan of the salvation, the plan to save a lost world from sin. And of all these attributes, God's righteousness is, is the one attribute of God that Paul chose to highlight of all, of all, all the rest uh, in his letter to the Romans. And specifically, we said this last week, that, 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 that Romans is about the righteousness of God in that he graciously gives his righteousness to every sinner who forsakes trying to, be, to get right with him by their own good works. That's essentially what it means, righteousness, to be right with God. He, he gives that righteousness as a gift to those who stop trying to get right with him themselves by their own good works and who, those who trust solely in the work that he has done through the life and death of his son Jesus for their salvation, which, by the way, inevitably leads to them living a righteous life befitting of one who has been freely and mercifully rescued from sin, death, and hell. And that, that's the transition verse, chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God. In other words, in light of all that God has done for you in the gospel, you need to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. It just makes sense. That if Christ came and lived and died for you, that you would live and die for him. Turn back to chapter 3, verse 21, where, as I mentioned, and again, this is an important point, and, and I'll make this probably multiple times, but if you remember in chapter 1, verse 17, he says, For in it, in the gospel, the righteous of God is revealed from faith to faith, as is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And you're like, ooh, this sounds good. I can't wait to, to hear what he says next. Well, for the next, essentially, two chapters, he doesn't talk about the righteousness of God. He talks about the unrighteousness of man or the sinfulness of man. And he doesn't return to the subject of God's righteousness until chapter 3, verse 21, where he says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sin previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be the just and justifier the one who has faith in Jesus. I would encourage you to maybe underline those verses, put a bracket around those verses, um, put a little heart next to those verses because that is the beating pulse of the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3 verses 21 through 26 and that's where this subtitle came from, how a gracious God makes guilty sinners right with him through faith in Jesus. And hopefully you still have the little roadmap that I provided you last week. If you missed, missed it last week, they're on the back table. You can grab one uh, either now or on your way out today. But uh, this is a, a, just a way to kind of uh, map our way through uh, this book, kind of the big picture here. Here's the forest so we don't get lost in all the trees. But, but notice... Uh, just very simply, the book, book breaks down into two sections. You have chapters 1 through 11, the gospel of God explained. That's the doctrinal section. And then you have the gospel of God applied. That's the practical section, verses 12 through 16. But notice the theme that's weaved throughout the entire book is the righteousness of God. And so he begins by talking about the lack of righteousness or the need of righteousness. And then he talks about the gift of righteousness the result of righteousness, the scope of righteousness, and then finally the life 
of righteousness. And so keep this handy because we'll be walking our way through this um, probably on a weekly basis just to kind of remind you where we're at uh, in our study. And last week, I I tried to just give you a a basic overview of Romans. We consider who wrote it and uh, who it was written to and why it was written. And I attempted to to, to show you that what many consider to be the most profound theological treatise ever penned was actually sort of like a missionary support letter in disguise. Paul was wrapping up his final missionary journey, the the task of of preaching the gospel and planting churches in Asia Minor, Macedonia, Achaia was complete. And now he had his sight set on taking the gospel uh, further west, which was Spain at the time. That was the the furthest west you could go, and, and, and he needed to stop off in Rome on the way, and no doubt Paul saw the capital city of Rome, um, which was the largest, most influential city at the time in the world. That was just a, a natural hub for taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, kind of like Antioch. It was going to be the new Antioch, where he launched his three missionary journeys from Antioch to Sivanic. Now he's going to go to Rome and launch, in his mind, more missionary journeys into Spain and beyond. And uh, what is unique, though, about this letter is, is that Paul had never visited Rome up to this point, uh, always wanted to go there, um, and, uh, and, and so he, needed, he wanted to, to introduce himself to these believers there, uh, even more importantly, to give a summary of his message in the hope that they would partner with him uh, in his future missionary endeavors through their prayers and through their material resources. And uh, this is pretty typical, right? If a missionary says, hey, I'm, I'm interested in, I'm looking for support, and, and, and the first thing we want to know is, hey, okay, so what's your mission? What's your message? Uh, we want to know what you're about, what you believe and what you teach to see if we're like-minded so that we can get on board with what you're doing. And that's what Paul's doing. He's letting them know, this is who I am, this is what I'm committed to, this is the message that I preach. This is my mission. And uh, when, when Paul wrote this from Corinth, uh, he was uh, on his final missionary journey, his third missionary journey. Uh, he was on his way, actually, to bring a benevolent offering to the impoverished believers in Jerusalem that he'd collected uh, from all the other churches that he had planted and pastored during the, the, the previous missionary journeys. And uh, so he was on his way to Jerusalem, and he had no idea what he might encounter there at the hands of those who hated Christ, who rejected Christ in Jerusalem. But he knew, I'm sure, that he not only could have been arrested, but even killed. And so the reason why I think this this letter has such an epic feel to it is because Paul wrote it as if this could have been his last letter. We know it wasn't. He was able to write some more letters after this, but, but in his mind, this, this, this might be it. And, and so I want to say it all. Um, and this might be my last will and testament as, a, as an apostle uh, to the Gentiles. And so the Holy Spirit capitalized on, on Paul's natural gifting and his 20 years of pondering and preaching and defending the gospel and all the training that he'd had over the years and and directed him to write a a systematic summary of God's plan of salvation. Not just for the churches in first century Rome, but for all churches of all times in every city, in every century, including Lakeside Bible Church. How cool is that to think that the Spirit of God, as he was inspiring Paul to write out this letter to the Romans, also had us in mind, the Christians in Lake Conroe. So we know the theme of this book is the gospel. But there's a a sub-theme, if you will, that I think is important for us to, to understand at the start, and because this is going to come into play 
on numerous occasions and probably in numerous sermons. But one thing you notice when you just read through the book of Romans is there's, there's all these references to Jews and Gentiles. Like Romans 1.16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Chapter 3, verse 29, interesting. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. And so you get the sense that there may have been some misunderstanding that was disrupting the unity of the Jewish and Gentile members within the Roman house churches. And so this letter is about the, the universal nature of the gospel and how it applies to all men. And, and, and this, this unity, this confusion may have been due in part to the fact that the Jews had been basically kicked out of Rome by the Emperor Claudius in AD 49 because of their controversial beliefs and, and practices. And after Claudius died, Nero became emperor in AD 54 and he invited the Jews to return. So five years had passed, no Jews in Rome, no Jewish believers in the churches. And so by then, the majority of believers in Rome were Gentiles. And so when the Jewish believers returned to their churches, it must have felt weird to be the minority. It's like, hey, the Gentiles kind of took over the church. And, and, and their ethical and cultural differences created tension and conflict between these two groups. And honestly, I, I don't know that I ever understood the, 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 the behind-the-scenes uh, issues going on, but when you look at that in, in, in light, or you consider that in light of, say, chapters 9, 10, and 11, where, where Paul goes off for three chapters simply to explain how both Jews and Gentiles fit into God's sovereign plan of salvation. Apparently, they were thinking, well, how do we both fit in this thing? It seems like maybe God left the Jews in the dust, and now it's all about the Gentiles, and we don't get this. Has God broken his promises to the Jews? And, and so he explains all that. And then in chapters 14 and 15, which I've always gone to and simply talked about gray areas in the church, right? Things that, that you know, we, we, we have different opinions about and preferences regarding uh, gray areas in the church and kind of left it on kind of more of a superficial understanding. Well, underneath the surface here, there were Jews and Gentiles within the churches in Rome that had different con convictions and different preferences in regards to Christian liberties. And so Paul's saying, listen, you need to learn how to accept one another and to defer to one another. And so again, this, is, this was eye-opening to me as I was observing this and reading about this and thinking, wow, this is... Uh, this is, this is helpful. Now, we have to be careful that we don't make this the main thing because there, there are some who would say, you know, the gospel and justification by faith alone is a secondary theme. The main theme is this whole thing about Gentiles and Jews. I'm not buying that. And I would encourage you not to buy it either. We're going to talk some more about that. Uh, and it's referred to as the new perspective on Paul. And, and it's a very subtle, um, a very dangerous way of thinking when it comes to Paul and his writings in the New Testament. Stay tuned for that. But who better than Paul to serve as the agent of reconciliation, to bring these two warring groups, if you will, Jews and Gentiles together? He was, he was brought up a, a Jew. He was a Jew. And he was trained in Judaism. At the same time, he was called as an apostle to the Gentiles. He was a Roman citizen. Again, he was the perfect candidate to, to bring these groups together. He was, uh, he was in the best position to be a mediator between them. He had, a, he had a foot in both camps. He had a burden for both groups. Talk about a burden for the Jews. Notice verse chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, verse 1, I am telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. In other words, I'm not just making this up. I'm not overstating it. I'm not exaggerating. 
He says that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I wish that I myself were a curse, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. In other words, I wish, if it were possible, that I could go to hell in order for my fellow Jews to be saved. That's radical. That's a burden for the lost. But notice his heart for the Gentiles. Romans chapter 15, verse 16. Romans 15, verse 16, he says that God had given him grace to be a minister of Christ to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And so he, he loved them both. He was burdened for them both. And, and based on his letter to the Ephesians, we know that God had chosen Paul to reveal the mystery of the church, something that was hidden in the mind of God in ages past, and then God chose Paul to reveal this through his writings in the New Testament, that through Christ, this was the mystery, that through Christ, God was reconciling to himself Jews and Gentiles into one unified body called the church. So it would no longer be, right, the Jews and no longer be the Gentiles. It would be simply Christians. And you can read about that in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 through chapter 3, verse 9. The mystery of the church. Well, Paul wrote Romans before he wrote Ephesians, but even then, Romans wasn't the first letter he had written, but the question we should ask ourselves is, well, why is it put first then? Why why is it the lead letter of all 13 of Paul's letters? Well, it may be that it's the longest letter. So it, it should be placed first. I think it's placed first appropriately because it provides the doctrinal foundation on which the rest of his letters are based. It also makes sense for Romans to come after Acts because the book of Acts ends with Paul under house arrest in Rome. And so it leads very naturally from Acts chapter 28, verse 30, 31 into Romans chapter 1, verse 1. So that's the background. We, we hopefully got the background out of the way here. And uh, not out of the way, but firmly uh, planted there. And so with that background in our minds, let's turn now our attention to the introduction, or as I've called it in our outline, the prelude to Paul's magnum opus. If you think about a magnum opus, a piece of music, maybe the prelude is just that, that beginning part, right, that kind of leads, builds up into the main body of work. But I read to you Paul's introduction at the beginning of the sermon this morning, and uh, what's unique about this introduction is that it's longer than any of his other letters, and for good reason. Um, as you know, typically Paul would begin his letters by introducing himself and then identifying his readers and, and giving a brief greeting, which he does. Notice verse 1. Paul, there he is. Hi, I'm Paul. Paul here. Um, actually, by the way, again, remember writing through an amanuensis named Tertius, chapter 16, verse 22. Uh, he was his kind of secretary who wrote, he was transcribing this letter as Paul spoke it to him. But here was Paul, the, the, the self-righteous, self-appointed persecutor of the church who was radically converted to Christ on his way to arrest Christians in Damascus and, and had been specially appointed by Christ himself to, to humbly serve as the apostle 
to the Gentiles. This is the Paul, and, and really, uh, we've studied the book of Acts uh, several years ago, and everything we learned about the Apostle Paul, his testimony, you could read all that we learned from the book of Acts, uh, starting in chapter 8, where he was standing there watching Stephen, the first martyr, be stoned to death, and they were dropping the coats at his feet as he was, in other words, in charge of this, uh, the first uh, martyrdom, uh, all the way to chapter 28. That, that's just, you could just funnel that all into this one little word, Paul. And so again, if you want to learn a little bit more about Paul, just read Acts, the book of Acts, starting in chapter 8, really chapter 7, all the way through the end of the book. But notice how Paul refers to himself um, in a twofold way, as he often did, as number one, a bondservant of Christ and an apostle of Christ. Paul says, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, literally a doulos or a what? Slave. Whenever I hear that word, I just think of my good friend in college who, who had that put on her license plate, you know, a vanity, a custom, a custom plate, and it just said doulos uh, in Greek on the front of her car and her back of her car, and it was an old beat up little car. I don't know what it was. I can't remember, but... Nobody cared because they loved the fact, look at that bumper. Or my buddy who's a pastor over in Austin, written across, tattooed on the back of his wrist, Christos Doulos, Christ's slave. And he said he wanted it there because whenever he types his sermons or writes anything, he wants to remind himself that he's Christ's slave. If you want to go again, deeper into this concept of, of being a slave of Christ, you can get uh, John MacArthur's book um, that he recently wrote, just simply called Slave. And um, a lot of people didn't like it because they don't want to think of themselves as a slave. I'm, not, I'm, no, I'm no longer a slave. Well, you're right. We're no longer slaves to sin, right? There's a lot of that we're going to learn in Romans chapter 6. But we need to have the mindset of a slave, according to the Apostle Paul, that we're servants of Christ. And and, and, and how did Paul think of this? Well, in, in his day, there were millions of slaves in the Roman Empire, the vast majority of whom had been forced into slavery and, and were kept there by law. I don't think Paul was thinking about Roman slaves. I was thinking, I think, I'm thinking he was, was, was referring to, to, to Hebrew slaves that are described in the Old Testament. Look back at Exodus chapter 21. Exodus chapter 21, this is a beautiful picture of, I think, the gospel. Exodus chapter 21, verse 2, God, in, when he was giving the law to, to the nation of Israel, made a provision for those who got themselves in a pickle and couldn't pay back a loan that they owed. Uh, they could, um, they could uh, make themselves a slave, allowed the person that they owed to buy them as a slave, but then also uh, God was gracious and merciful and said, you can only be their slave for six years and then on that seventh year, you need to be released. It's kind of the Sabbath idea. But notice this, this is Exodus 21 verse two. If you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve for six years. In other words, if you enslave a fellow Jew, he shall serve for six years, but on the seventh, he shall go out as a free man without payment. In other words, he's free, debt paid. If he comes alone, he shall go out alone. If he's the husband of a wife, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to her master and he shall go out alone. Kind of a little tricky, gets tricky there, right? But if the slave plainly says, here it is, I love my master, my wife and my children. I will not go out as a free man. Then his master shall bring him to God. Then he shall bring him to the door or the door post and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl and he shall serve him permanently. And so here you have a, a slave who willingly, gladly, even binds himself to his master for life. And I think this is the, the mindset 
that Paul had when it came to being a bondservant of Christ. He was so overwhelmed by the love and kindness that Christ had shown to him, he gladly chose to serve Christ with his life as one who had been purchased by Christ and who was owned by Christ. Paul said in 2 Corinthians, or excuse me, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that we've been bought with, our, bought with a price. We're no longer our own. 2 Corinthians 5.14, for the love of Christ controls us or compels us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died, and he died for all, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. And then, of course, Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. And gave himself up for me. How could I do any less than love him and give myself up for him? And so here we see, first of all, Paul's great humility in his position as a bondservant of Christ Jesus. But that great humility was in no way a denial of his great authority that he was called as an apostle. Literally, that word apostle means sent one. Apostle. This is the official title used to describe the 12 men that Christ chose and commissioned to go into all the world and preach the gospel and establish the church and write the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, he gave some as apostles and prophets serving as the foundation of the church. And, and, and Christ gave them the ability to perform signs and wonders to, to authenticate them as, as messengers, as his messengers who, who spoke with the same authority as Christ himself. And, and therefore, they were to be listened to and followed as one would listen to and follow Christ. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. In other words, you remember when I was with you in Corinth that I performed miracles that were granted to me by the Holy Spirit to authenticate me as, as Christ's messenger. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4 says that God was testifying with them, with the apostles, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So that's how you knew someone was an apostle, is they had the ability to do these, these uh, miraculous things by the power of the Holy Spirit. But not only did Christ give them the ability to perform signs and wonders, he also gave them divine revelation, which they wrote down and, and, and served as the foundation of the church. In, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says when the church was born at Pentecost, it says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and the breaking of bread and to prayer. And so that was the, the, the initial all the Bible studies they were having together, right, were not only Old Testament scriptures, but also the writings um, of, of, the, uh, of the apostles. And in Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verse 20, it talks about the church, excuse me, being God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And so... You're only an apostle if you can do signs and wonders. You're only an apostle if you receive divine revelation, neither of which things are happening today. And so we can conclude there's no more apostles, right? The, the apostleship died with the apostle Paul as the last apostle that Christ called. And, 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 and you had to be qualified for that, by the way. Um, in order to qualify to be an apostle, you had to have ministered alongside Christ during his ministry years. Also, you had to, been, had to been an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. You might remember in Acts chapter 1 when they were trying to come up with a replacement, the 11 disciples were trying to come up with a replacement for Judas, and they put two men before the Lord in prayer and said, okay, th these are our criteria. They have to have been with us from the beginning uh, when Christ was baptized through his ministry years, and they had to be a witness of, of the resurrected Christ. 
And those were the two criteria. And they prayed and they appointed Matthias as the 12th disciple. You say, well, well, then how did Paul qualify? He obviously hadn't ministered alongside Christ, but he did have a face-to-face encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. And um, that's got to count for something, right? Um, and Paul even describes himself as, as one untimely born. In, in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, he says, Last of all, as it were to one untimely born, Christ appeared to me also. For I am the least of the apostles who am not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. In other words, the the last thing that Paul would have ever imagined himself doing was being an apostle of Christ. Nor would he have have ever asked for the job. He hated Christ. He hated his apostles. He was trying to kill Christians. And so it it seems pretty clear, but Paul wanted to make sure no one missed the fact that, that, that he hadn't volunteered for this job. He hadn't been nominated to this in this role by his peers, God had sovereignly, miraculously chosen him to serve as the 13th apostle, if you will, and set him apart for the unique role of transitioning the gospel beyond the Jews so that it also incorporated the Gentiles. Turn back just a few pages if you're in Romans 1. Just look back at Acts chapter 26 in, 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 listen to what Paul says in his defense before King Agrippa. Verse 14, he's describing this, and when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goats. And, and, and we're familiar with this kind of in a ranch community, right? Sometimes you got to stick a a sharp stick in the rear end of a cow or an animal to kind of hurt them in the direction they want to go. And that doesn't always um, you know, sit well with them. So sometimes they kick against that, right? And they buck against that. And Paul's saying, hey, God's saying, hey, Saul, you, you know, you're kicking against the goat here. I'm trying to move you in a direction here and you're kicking against the move of the Spirit of God here in the church. And he, and he said, I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Can you imagine how shocking that must have been to Paul that, hey, you're persecuting me. This is Jesus who's talking. And, and of course, Paul, like the rest of the Pharisees of his day, thought Jesus didn't rise from the dead. It was a sham. It was, uh, you know, fabricated. And now he's hearing the voice of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And not only just hearing his voice, but seeing him, it says. He says, but get up and stand on your feet. For this purpose, I have appeared to you. There it is. I have appeared to you to appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you have seen, but also the things in which I will appear to you, rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. And so, all that to say, Paul was uh, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart by God for the gospel. And again, even though he played such a significant role in the history of the church, he, he always stayed very humble and, and grateful for God's grace in his life. And he, he frequently expressed how unworthy, how undeserving he felt to serve in the role of an apostle. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. And again, I just want to give you a feel for this man as we begin. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet was shown Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. The least of the apostles, the worst of sinners, 
That was Paul's perspective. Yet, he says, verse 16, for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe him for eternal life. Again, now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. You think about those men throughout church history that we talked about last week, we learned about last week, who were radically converted through the gospel uh, presented by Paul in Romans, right? These people were like Paul. They were so far from the Lord. They were the last people that you would think would ever get saved, even as Paul was. And it, was, it took a man like Paul, who had had a radical conversion himself to convince them, right, that, that this was all true. And so Romans chapter 1, verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. He introduces himself, as he customarily did, and then he addresses his readers and gives them a blessing in verse 7. Notice verse 7, to all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I love that description, by the way, those who are beloved of God. When I first read through the book of Romans in preparation for this study, that's the phrase that jumped out at me right away, that I'm beloved of God. God loves me. I'm, I'm part of that description. It's not just the Roman Christians, it's, it's, it's every Christian is beloved by God. And we're saints, we're set apart even as Paul was set apart from sin to serve Christ. And then, of course, he uses the characteristic greeting in all of his letters, combining the, the traditional Greek and Hebrew greetings of the day, charis and shalom, uh, as a way of addressing um, both the Jews and the Gentiles, making them both feel included in what he was going to say, grace to you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. So... This is a, a normal introduction in, in, in light of the fact that he does what he always does. He introduces himself, he addresses the readers, he provides a blessing. You say, well, what in the world is verses 2 through 6 then? That's what's unique about the book of Romans. Most, of the, most other letters, verse 7 would be verse 2. And they would be compressed. And you wouldn't have, you know, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 verses in between. So what was going on there? Well, I think Paul was digressing from his introduction to clarify this unique calling as the apostle to the Gentiles and elaborate on the gospel that God had called him to preach. And, 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 and again, for good reason, because unlike most of the other letters that he wrote to churches, Paul had not founded any of these churches, nor had he ever visited any of these churches. And so he likely felt the need to establish his credentials and, and expand on his message. And as one commentator said so well, he said, the entire thrust of the 16 chapters of Romans is distilled in the first seven verses. The apostle apparently was so overjoyed by his message of good news that he could not wait to introduce his readers to the gist of what he had to say, and so he burst into it immediately. And so he can't help it, couldn't help himself, he just kind of, the gospel just kind of spilled out. Ooh, oops, sorry, more to come. That was all for free, right? Spoiler alert. But this is a letter about the gospel, and so it begs the question, what is the gospel? And so Paul gives us a sneak peek, or a sneak preview maybe, we could say, to answer that question. And in these verses, verses 2 through 6, we see eight facets of the breathtaking gem that is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And um, in other words, eight foundational truths about the gospel. The first of which is really inherent in the, the book itself and in the title of this morning's sermon, The Gospel of God. Paul used that expression two times, the gospel of God. And simply to say, the gospel was masterminded by God. It's his gospel. It's not mine, not yours, not Paul's. It's God's gospel. And that's what makes it so glorious. And so come back in two weeks, because next week our man camp speaker is going to be here preaching to us. But in two weeks we'll get into this, these verses and look at these, these eight uh, foundational truths about the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for um, just this introductory thinking that we're doing about this book. It's helpful just to kind of get our bearings and get our minds around what, what Paul was, was doing. And, and, and so as we move into the, the specifics here and we walk into the forest, we're not going get, to get lost along the way. And so I pray that even, uh, Lord, just the, the little bits and pieces of this book that we've we've talked about and thought about this morning would sink deep into our minds and our hearts and that we would, um, Lord, appropriate these things by the power of your spirit uh, into our lives and, and, and more than anything, that we would remember that like Paul, we have been, we have been uh, set apart from this world and from sin um, unto you and ultimately so that we could be um, messengers of the gospel, the good news of salvation to a world that desperately needs to hear it right now, especially. And so help us to take advantage of, of all the bad news in the world today to give, give the good news of the gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.